Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Mabin, and today I'm joined by two very exciting guests. As far as we're aware, this is the very first of its kind. So I'm sure you're all very excited to, to join us and to welcome two wonderful colleagues, two wonderful experts. First up, we have Dr. Aziz Algashian, and we also have Dr. Nir Bombs. Nir is a research fellow at the Moshe Dayan Center at Tel Aviv University. He's the chairman of the Syria Research Forum and the Gulf Israel Policy Forum. It's long alongside the coordinator of the TAU Workshop on Israel and the Middle East and the Hiwa Forum for Inter-Regional Dialogue. He holds a doctorate from the University of Haifa and has done a lot of work on broader regional dynamics with a focus on Syria and Iran. Alongside Nir is Aziz Algashian. Aziz is a fellow at SEPAD. He holds a PhD from Essex University and has done some really fascinating work looking at Saudi foreign policy towards Israel. He does a lot of work on discourse analysis and has lectured at the University of Essex from 2019 to 2021. He's done work on discourses of sectarianism and has published journalistic pieces with The Conversation, the Arab Gulf States Institute, and the SEPAD website. He's currently working on his book project on Saudi relations with Israel. So, from bringing together Aziz and Nia, I'm sure you're, you're all able to figure out what the topic of today's conversation is, namely, Saudi relations with Israel. As I mentioned earlier, this is, as far as I'm aware, the first of its kind to bring together a Saudi scholar and an Israeli scholar in conversation. So first of all, I must thank you both, Aziz and Nir. Thank you for your courage, your intellectual curiosity, and of course, your time. Now, Aziz, you've written extensively on this topic. So let me start with you, please. Where are we at right now? What is the landscape of Saudi-Israeli relations at present? And why do we even need to talk about it? Yeah. Well, uh, firstly, Simon, thank you. Thank you very much for, for inviting me here. It's a great pleasure to be with you and be with Nir. Um, I think that the landscape is, a, is, a, is one, I would say, of a, uh, an orbiting uh, of saudi uh, Israeli relations. They kind of seem to be orbiting around each other rather than kind of moving towards each other. Uh, and I think it's this delicate dance uh, for some time now. Um, and we've seen that, um, you know, there, in, in, recent, in recent years, there's been this speculation and, and reports and, and policies, actually, you know, from, from very, very budding policies about this rapprochement towards each other. But somehow this normalization is... is it's just, it just gets to be elusive. You know, a lot of the times people think that normalization is around the corner, speculation is around the corner, uh, or speculation around normalization, and, and that, you know, the imminency of normalization is going to take place. But then somehow it just, it, it slips. It, it's, it's, it's not there. Um, and, and I think one of the reasons that, that is, is that perhaps there is no need to normalize as of yet, uh, uh, of relations between both states. And I think, you know, the, the Arab, the Abraham Accords in itself kind of uh, expanded the realms of harmony between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Uh, and, and therefore, it kind of de-incentivizes the need to cooperate 
explicitly and openly. So what this does is that it kind of maintains this uh, relations at a level that Saudi finds itself very comfortable with. Um, not very open, uh, very deniable, uh, at a safe distance. And I think, um, and that's why we're going to see this in a very long time. Now, of course, that is very difficult to try to theorize at times and understand and explain. And I think that's why it's important to really keep talking about this, because I think this relationship between Saudi Arabia and Israel uh, expands the theoretical and conceptual horizons of, of relations. Uh, it kind of produces new ideas of how we ought to look at relations between states, between states that don't want to, or a state in this case, that doesn't want to seem too close, but doesn't want to be too far, or doesn't want to seem too close, but is not that far. And there is this kind of very elusive, foggy, you know, opaque relations uh, that requires a, a, a different way of thinking about relations and, a, and, and new frameworks and new concepts. And that's what I think, I think as a as a researcher, that's what I find most exciting about this. So this is an opportunity to kind of build new terminologies uh, regarding uh, the international relations of the Middle East. Sure. Thanks, Aziz. Nia, over the years uh, since the formation of the State of Israel, we've had um, prime ministers and defense ministers talking about Israel being in a tough neighborhood and a bad neighborhood for, for obvious reasons, given the, the legacy of conflict. But that seems to be changing post, um, well, I guess post Sadat, you could maybe say, um, but certainly post Abraham Accords. Where does Israel position itself then in the in sort of regional dynamics right now? And, and why does Saudi matter so much to the Israelis? Let me start the first part, uh, Simon. You asked an important question. For Prime Minister we had here, El Barak, uh, used to uh, uh, coin the phrase a villa in the jungle. Um, many of us don't like it so much, but what you refer to, that Israel is kind of the villa, the more normalized place in the middle of a very hostile environment. There are two problems with it, uh, or the way it changed. One, you know, our villa uh, has its own issues at times, and that's for domestic uh, podcast. Uh, but the jungle around us, uh, it really depends how you look at it, and it certainly has been changing. Now, just to remind you, uh, of course, uh, this has changed in the first 25 years of the state. You know, we've seen the bulk of, of the war, uh, of the wars here. And then following 1973, uh, we um, uh, moving into a different era that begins in 1979, you know, with uh, uh, Egypt. Uh, and then, uh, then it's Oslo, Palestinians, and then it's Jordan um, in '94. Uh, and all of that uh, is part of the background of what will happen next, which in many ways is much more significant when it comes to the Abraham Accords. All of this is extremely critical to Israel because uh, part of the expression of Billah in the jungle has to do with uh, a sense of isolationism uh, in where Israel finds itself in a place where it feels that the hostile environment, you can't really take your car and drive anywhere like you can in Europe or like you can in other places, uh, you you feel that the surrounding countries, including those who made peace with you, are not always the friendliest. 
the uh, extent of, of anti-Semitism uh, uh, and animosity in Jordan and in Egypt still very much exists. Every few years you would see these pictures of uh, burned Israeli flags. In Egypt, uh, at some point, it's reached uh, the, the point where we had to rescue our own diplomatic team from a mob uh, that's about to, to hunt them down in front of their enemies. All of a sudden, uh, with the uh, Abraham Court era, we see a very different picture. We see a very different welcome. Uh, and we see things uh, in the last two years. We've seen many fair things, and I've experienced many of them uh, also personally. Uh, but just to see you know, four foreign ministers uh, in, uh, in, in Israel from the region doing a conference, the Negev summit you know, with the Americans, and to see... Uh, um, the uh, flags of Arab countries and the Israeli flag is waving uh, in the heart of the Arab world. And, and that's not even, you know, mentioning that the World Cup, uh, you know, is coming and all of a sudden you'll see Israelis in Qatar. Uh, uh, this is a very different Middle East and, and the beginning of the shape of a very different environment. Um, it is still a jungle in some ways, but I think because it's a jungle in some ways, that's what helped, particularly on the second circle of some of the countries in the Gulf, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to emerge uh, within the process of the Abraham Accord. White bounty matters um, has to do with really two factors. Uh, uh, it has to do with the Muslim Islamic factor, with the position of Saudi Arabia um, as the custodian uh, uh, of the holiest places to Islam, and in a way uh, also as the guard, uh, the guide. Uh, of uh, much of the Sunni Muslim camp in the world, of course, uh, they're not the only ones, and it's not that uh, there is a hierarchy here or that everybody listens to what the Saudis are saying. On the other hand, if we're looking at the history of it, the Saudis not always uh, in the Washatia or the more moderate uh, side of things uh, when it uh, 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 brought uh, uh, institutions and, and uh, uh, and different proxies in this uh, regard, uh, whether it's in the academia, whether it's in the policy arena, whether it's literally uh, with, with training imams and leaders who had made a, a significant influence uh, in regional and global politics. Um, and the second thing is the Saudi position just within the region and within the Gulf, a significant country. Um, and the weight of Saudi Arabia has uh, uh, certainly uh, uh, ramifications to other countries. And I think it would be fair to say, and for this I would uh, uh, relate to uh, what uh, my brother Aziz had said before, uh, I, I think it would be very difficult to see Bahrain joining the Abraham Accord if the Saudis would uh, stand on their rear feet and said no. Um, and uh, I also think, uh, and perhaps that will lead to some of the next questions, that sort of this question here and this uh, 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 dynamic that uh, uh, you know, half in and half out uh, uh, that Regis was trying to uh, describe uh, is, is maybe a correct one, but perhaps another way of saying it is that the question here is not necessarily whether Saudi is going to normalize or Saudi is going to normalize. I think we have to recognize changes that are happening uh, in all the region overall. And I think for us also, this is, uh, there needs to be a, a degree of maturity to say, look, uh, we, it's not about whether it's not a dichotomy of either or uh, with, um, you know, either red or green light. There are many shades in the middle. And I think what's happening now is, is positive. 
Uh, and I think these shades are important. Uh, and I think the potential of this uh, has broader ramifications, such as the unique position in Saudi Arabia, on other questions, including, for example, the Palestinian one. Sure, thanks. That's, that's really interesting. And there's a number of, of issues that I want to pick up on um, in, in due course. But Nir, if I can just quickly come back to you and just ask from the Israeli side, the, the Abraham Accords are viewed, um, of course, as a, as a huge diplomatic breakthrough, but also there's, there's underlying factors at play here. And I think teasing those out slightly would be useful in understanding this opacity or the ambiguity with regard to the Saudi um, position. And they are at least the economic and the sort of the security or the, um, the, the defensive components. Is that, is that fair to say from the Israeli view? I think the security dimension and the threat assessments or really the understanding of the new alignment in the region and where Israel and many of the Gulf states, including Saudi fit, is a major part of it. And it has to do with two issues. From the Shia side, it's the Iranian issue. From the Sunni side, is different schools of thoughts that are adopting a more radical element. And I think for here, we need to particularly uh, look at what happened in Egypt uh, in 2012 and 2013 as a very important piece of it, because uh, this had to do with an understanding that the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, as uh, the modern uh, that represents some of this uh, Islamist uh, thinking, uh, is becoming an enemy, uh, becoming a consensual enemy uh, in many uh, places in the Gulf and beyond. Uh, and they understand that because, they, this, because of what's happening in the Arab Spring, that really destroys the uh, old order and that brings degree uh, of this order uh, and a threat for a new order that's going to destabilize things further. And, and that understanding uh, actually puts uh, Israel and the Gulf states uh, in different place because there is a real realization that the threat, the threat assessment, is very similar uh, on on both sides of this point. The, the economy piece, of course, is always uh, important, but let me also say something, if I may, slightly more philosophical uh, uh, about this. Please. And that, I, I think, is, is also uh, something that is a part of it, uh, although not always easy to capture it in new political terms. If we're looking, and this is also corresponds to uh, a number of public opinion polls, uh, in, in the Gulf, uh, in Israel, but also in Rome, what are the real problems that the region deals with and what are the real problems that people see as a, a real threat and, and challenges to their own lives? Uh, perhaps a decade ago, a little more than a decade ago, it would be easier, easier to say, well, look, you know, the real problem is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to some degree or some inter-Arab politics. Um, although, and I'm not sure this would have been really the case. But if you look at today, uh, when you have people, totally at the height of uh, the Arab Spring, quote-unquote, uh, at the rise of the Islamic State, you would see that people will tell you year after year, they are terrified from radicalization, they are terrified from terrorism, because terrorism brings lack of stability, and lack of stability uh, brings in the two or three factors that deals with, you know, economic stability, unemployment, opportunities for the future. 
And only after they then with all of that, then they can begin to think about politics. If you really think about this region, uh, we have a threat of uh, close to 100 million people that may not have job prospects. Uh, we have serious issues related to uh, environment, global warming, drought, water, um, that, are really, that are really touching people's lives. Now, it's not that every person uh, feels it equally. There are plenty of people who feel it uh, and we don't know how to articulate it. Uh, but there is an understanding that if we're going to continue with uh, a dynamic of destabilization, failed states, uh, and we're not going to be able to deal, deal with these more fundamental issues, uh, we're all going down the drain. And so you need to bring the more pragmatic, uh, moderate parties that are able to see the larger picture and say, if we're not, we need to, on the one hand, fight radicalizations together, then we need to find a way to establish some degrees of common ground so we can really deal with the problem, particularly also when other countries, uh, you know, other patrons may be uh, uh, a bit fading away. And that sense of regional leadership is also a part of it that is very much connected to what you said, to the security you mentioned mm. in the economic thing. That point about order, I think, is really fascinating, and um, the sort of the transition from a quote unquote old order to a to a new order that is is in some ways status quo driven and desired um, sort of a, a desired stability rather than the the unpredictability and instability of, of radicalization, poverty, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I think that's really fascinating and points to the, the coming together of, of like-minded states in, in many ways. As he's, we've, we've seen people writing on, on Saudi-Israeli relations as sort of a, a tacit security regime. Um, Clive Jones, for example, a friend of the pod, uh, has, has written on, on that tacit security. And I think that's an interesting way of, of looking at it. But before we get to that point, I mean, how does the, the Saudi state and the Saudi population, I guess, more importantly, view the Abraham Accords? Because there is obviously this, this dialogue and this engagement, this tacit security engagement already existing. And we can perhaps unpick that a little bit. But with the Abraham Accords, which are now a couple of years old, I mean, how does the Saudi population view it? What, what were their responses if we can talk of a Saudi population generally at this point in time, which I guess is perhaps a, a challenging uh, question to pose. Well, it's, it's a very, it is a very challenging and a very interesting one. And I think even before that, I think trying to figure out what the public opinion is and, and why they focus on it in that particular way uh, is I mean, it's interesting because now I think this this competition. Let me let me just say this again. There seems to be the Saudi public opinion towards Israel, towards the Abraham Accords, towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, is now becoming a space of sort of competition where people are trying to compete and trying to say, okay, well, it's kind of heading towards that way, and then some people are trying to say it's heading towards this way. And some people are saying it's, 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 it's you know, it, it, there's a couple of people that indicated something here that looks favorably at something. And, and, and I think what we could figure out is that the, the public opinion towards the Arab Abraham Accord is a very, uh, it's a very elusive one um, because it's always fluid. 
And it's always dependent on how the Abraham Accords has been framed. So if people, you know, Nair spoke pretty articulately regarding the, 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 the matters of security. And if you would speak to people about matters of security um, and Israel, uh, regarding Saudi Arabia and Israel and, and, and kind of tackling these ma- ma- massive security issues, and particularly the Muslim Brotherhood or, 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 or Iran or its, its proxies in the region, you will see a, a very kind of favorable response. You will say, yeah, well, we, we don't, we don't, you know, why not? I mean, we, you know, Israel is no longer the enemy. Israel's, you know, we've always said this. We haven't seen much bad things from Israel, really. I, I don't see it. And I think that's one of the things that the, Abra- the, 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 the Arab Spring has disrupted or kind of tackled is that it changed that perception that, you know what, Israel probably not the main security threat that we face. But then if you mention uh, normalization, Tatbir, this aspect that has gained so much, um, that has kind of so much negative baggage in, in the discourse throughout inter-Arab and, and inter-regional conflicts, you will find that uh, people tend to step away from it and try to distance themselves from this prospect of normalization. And because it's been, been overly politicized for a long time, so, you know, many anti-Saudi outlets have always criticized Saudi for being uh, the normalizers and, and being these normalizing people and being that, you know, the, the, these are the... Uh, the, the traders, if you like. And as a result, you see this distance from, from normalization. You see this kind of, no, 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 we're not, we're not, we're not these normalizers because it gained this kind of negative baggage. But also what I've, in my, in my kind of uh, curiosity with people and uh, my kind of research with people, when you say, well, what about Saudi Arabia, Israel, and Iran? Or Saudi Arabia, Israel, and the, and the, and the Brotherhood? Or any other kind of mutual threats you'll... You know, they, they start to pontificate and say, yeah, you know, I may, may, let's see. Well, I, I haven't seen much negative things from Israel. But then when you see, when you say, and you frame the Abraham Accords or you frame normalization with Israel uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a framing of, well, uh, what about East Jerusalem? And what about uh, Al-Aqsa? Oh, what do you think of uh, relations with that? Uh, you know, and, and they're kind of, where Palestinians don't have sovereignty over the Aqsa, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you, you know, you find a very different response. Oh, no, we don't. No, 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 no. We, we, we're, we're not in favor of that. Oh, no. You know, we, we, and you find this very, very fluid process. And that's why what I find really interesting, and one of the things that I really want to do is to, to try to have focus groups in Israel, and I'm sorry, in Saudi Arabia, regarding this, because the, the understanding of Israel is so contingent in in the Saudi discourse. It fluctuates a lot. You know, one second Israel is is, is perceived uh, negatively, the next second it's perceived, perceived positively. One second it's perceived semi-positively, you know, it's talking about this dichotomy. The other second it's perceived, you know, yes, but, uh, no, maybe. Yeah, you know, and, and you get this kind of very particular fluid. So I think one of the things that we could agree on is that there's not much to, not, we could agree that it's a very fluid process and a very fluid perception. So in the context of that fluidity, um, and I'll come yeah. to you, Nia, um, 
there is this, as as Clive Jones has said, this tacit security um, agreement, arrangement, complex, however you want to characterize it. What does that actually look like in the context of this sort of shifting geopolitical landscape, shifting vision of order, the shifting um, views of Israel from the Saudis? Um, and the, the shifting political landscape in Israel, of course, which, again, we've not really touched on. The, the multiple moving parts in this are, are vast. Well, if, if I want to try and, 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 and capture one theme relating to this question, is what do we mean when we are taking something that has been, that has been in existence under the table? And we put it uh, in a more prominent place where people can see. And one of my colleagues once said, you know, that at some point, you know, we've been doing under the table for so long that it became too crowded. There was just no choice. You just have to like, just bring some of it in. But there's something I think more interesting in this, which is related to the previous question we have uh, discussed. And that relates very much also to the Palestinians. Um, many in the Middle East and, and beyond have looked at the Israeli dynamic uh, through the prism of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, the Saudis as well, but we've seen in the last few years, uh, not just with the Saudis, that some of that began to shift. Uh, and that had to do with a number of factors, one of them being the Arab Spring, because there's been so many issues uh, on the table, and with all the respect to the Palestinian uh, uh, issue that has, to some degree had played one of the last uh, unity cards in the Arab uh, discourse. There's very few things that uh, anyone can agree on, but at least we can try to agree on the Palestinians, or at least we can try to agree on the, that Israel is doing something wrong in, in, in this regard, and we have to back the Palestinians up because they're under uh, this uh, horrible occupation. Um, but even that uh, uh, began to break, because if now, uh, which is the Muslim Brotherhood, is responsible uh, for uh, uh, Gaza and, and half, if not perhaps even more from Palestinian policy. And we already have seen, including uh, very prominent Saudi speakers, criticizing the Palestinian Authority. The Emiratis have done the same, and they actually have an active campaign to put you know, their own Palestinian in charge. Um, and the Muslim Brotherhood and the Hamas, it becomes even more complicated because now they're a sworn enemy. And part of what they're saying is that we're obviously anti-normalization. And part of what we're saying broadly in the Gulf, and I would broadly the horizon for a second, this relates uh, uh, to women being allowed to drive. This is, uh, it relates to uh, some measures of public participation voting in local elections. This, this uh, relates to a discourse on tolerance, religious tolerance, uh, uh, ministry of tolerance in the... Uh, UAE, uh, this whole idea that uh, we are actually need to find a way to respect each other, re reassess our textbooks. So all of a sudden, uh, even the Israel card and the Palestinian card are very different. We have we have to distance ourselves from the uh, Muslim Brotherhood, from Hamas, uh, which is a way of the struggle. We have to adopt the art time to adopt uh, a, a different discourse broadly. Uh, we are actually as a part of the struggle of the in you know the, the ideological fight, we need to create a degree of an alternative, not necessarily a ideology, but just an alternative mindset. 
people with a more moderate thinking. And a part of the whole moderate thinking again uh, um, goes back to this issue. You reject uh, part of the Palestinian file, you certainly reject the uh, more extreme uh, views of Hamas. Uh, uh, and if they're saying that we cannot normalize, we are almost automatically going to the other side of it and says, well, perhaps normalization is not such a bad idea. If our detractors are saying that we cannot do it, we should say that we actually may uh, at, least, at least consider it. And all of that is a much broader move because there is an understanding that if we're going to let the Islamists win, uh, eventually whatever remains of, of the order, and certainly the goal that is not influenced directly uh, by the Arab Spring uh, in, in, in a similar way to countries uh, like Lebanon or Iraq or, or, or Libya that really uh, you know, became um, destabilized in a very significant way. They don't want to see it. Uh, and, and as a part of the realignment, uh, then all of these issues, including Israel and including the Palestinian uh, uh, file, comes uh, into play. And I think this is a, uh, this is a part of the uh, connectedness. Of course, as the last comment, David, uh, when you're looking at the Israeli uh, uh, discourse, uh, part of it is shaking this villain's evil also internally. Part of it is shaking the paradigm in where, where everybody looks at uh, this through the Israeli-Palestinian struggle, then all of a sudden, so it's not just Israeli and Palestinian, it's also Jewish Muslim or Israeli and Arab, and all of a sudden we begin to, we begin to uh, uh, use things, uh, what we academics, you know, we like to conceptualize things and, and put things in categories. And, you know, it's, uh, I found myself for years saying to people, oh, you know, okay, we know plenty of people who say to us, these Israelis, these Jews, but we know ourselves better, we know that we are very much divided, the Jews usually have at least four or five opinions uh, on most issues. Um, and, uh, and do you think it doesn't apply on the other side? On the contrary, look at what's happening now. Uh, you have people, camps, countries uh, that uh, are playing a very different game. We are not looking at this as a monolith. Um, and we see forces that are destabilizers and forces that are stabilizing. We see a potential stabilizing factor all throughout the, the region. They include Egypt. They include Jordan for quite some time, but now they include many others in the Gulf. Whether we normalize with them or not, um, we certainly see the, the value of this stabilization uh, axis. Um, and this is something that Israelis begin to see, particularly if you work on PPP and people initiative, and we try to, to play a role in, in building a bridge uh, on, around issues, understanding cultures, understanding the others, understanding history, narrative. Getting to know each other. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. There, thank you. Just to pick up on on that and getting to know the other and and really addressing the the Palestinian question because it strikes me that's that's right at the heart of um, the Saudi population's concerns. Right, the long-standing commitment to the Palestinian cause, dating back to the the Khartoum summit in the seventies or the late sixties. Right. So, Aziz, where does the Palestinian question fit in the strategic calculations of, of Mohammed bin Salman and his, his um, key advisors? How, how do they reconcile the, the, um, the Palestinian question? In, in, well, firstly, before I wanted to, 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 to talk about that and answer your question, I, I realized I didn't answer uh, half of your question that you asked me before about <laughs> 
gotcha security regime. Uh, and I'll just say this quickly, because, you know, one of the, the things that uh, we should really appreciate the work of Clive Jones and, and, and Yoel Gazensky was that he, they, uh, they both kind of nudged the readers uh, and researchers into, into thinking how, into how we ought to think about Saudi-Israeli relations in this tacit idea and not this kind of notion of alliance or a secret alliance, and, you know, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So I think they actually pushed and, and are pushing the readers to thinking the way, uh, thinking properly, how we ought to be thinking about this relationship. So that's, that's what we really appreciate of, about that work and their, their, their conceptualization. But I think in the matter of Palestine, you know, Palestine, it, 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 this ties into uh, some things that Nair mentioned, which is this, you know, in, in recent years, we, we also see also in the wake of the Arab Spring and the result of the Arab Spring, we see respective nationalisms being taking place and arising. And then within this nationalism, Palestine and Israel play a particular role. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the roles that they play is actually a detachment from the past. It's saying, listen, we are no longer going to be those people that uh, kind of fought for the cause and kind of are going to fight collectively for this cause and sacrifice our interests for the, the, the overall cause that some countries have profited by, that they, they've viewed some other uh, countries, like, this is the Saudi discourse, that kind of Syria and half of the Assad, who constantly said, they will, they're ready to fight Israel, goodness gracious, you know, everybody hold on, but then all of a sudden, uh, they just invade Lebanon a bit more. Or uh, or Saddam Hussein says the same thing when it comes to Iraq, uh, you know, invading Kuwait. And so these people say, listen, no, we're no, we're no longer there. We're, no, we're going to look for a, a Saudi-first kind of policy. But this is what I want to want people to, to, to realize. This is my opinion on the matter. This perception towards Israel, in my opinion, is not that organic. Uh, in other words, it is not a result of a let's recalibrate and look at these people from you know a different perspective, and maybe there's something there. It's at, at sometimes these calls for normalization is is out of spite of something else. It's what you don't like. I'm going to say. So sometimes there are some pragmatists in there that are saying, listen, man, man, let, let us think about this relationship and, 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 and better, better kind of understand this and, and see and assess the situation. But sometimes this, these, that loud kind of people that you see in social media or even in the media discourse of, you know, these people, they, 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 they sold the cause, as, as some of them say. They, they, they're the ones that are industrializing from the cause. So I think it, it plays, you know, this aspect here. Now, the role of Palestine, when it comes to the calculation of the Crown Prince and MBS, the Arab, if, if we could see anything from the Arab Peace Initiative, I'm sorry, from the Abraham Accord, is that it made the Arab Peace Initiative a symbol of Saudi leadership. And now, it's something that while the UAE is kind of pushing for this different, different kind of relationship, different kind of a new order, after the kind of the 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 order coming out of this uh, Arab Spring, that this you know this this new Middle East that is 
is openly cooperating with Israel and 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 kind of introducing Israel into explicitly in its in its calculations, etc. The Arab Peace Initiative and indeed the, the Palestinian cause and the role of Palestine and in Jerusalem, to be more precise, is now a is now a symbol of kind of Saudi leadership and Saudi kind of uh, maintain, maintenance of this kind of um, the, the 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 traditions and the symbolisms of, of of Saudi, and I think you could see that especially after the result of Biden in the visit, because Biden came in with a very a very kind of pro-Israeli, uh, not won't say pro-Israeli, that he came into the region to visit Saudi, but he said that he's, he's, he's really framing this trip as trying to bring Arabs in Israel closer together, uh, et cetera. And then, you know, he came in with, with such a, with such high, ambitions and that's what kind of led to more speculation but because he's very unpopular in Saudi Arabia the Arab Peace Initiative kind of became something to be even more proud of and it kind of distanced this notion of of normalization a little bit more but I think it distanced it into something uh, into back into its kind of space where Saudi likes likes to be that it's not too close and it's not too far but and that's the role of the of the Palestinian issue is that you know earlier in the um, earlier in the in, in in the podcast in in the episode I kind of mentioned about this no- notion of orbiting and I, I I personally look at this is my humble opinion I I look at Saudi Israeli relations at, at times as this particular orbit that they kind of orbit around each other and that's one of the places that they orbit around each other is this Palestinian Israeli issue. And the same thing happens with Iran, for example. They kind of orbit around Iran. They don't kind of, you know, it's this idea where at times even the policies openly kind of are harmonious. So what the Palestinian issue kind of serves as is indeed, for many Saudis, they find this to be very, very uh, prominent. Not as prominent as it used to be, if I'm honest with you. But it doesn't mean that it's not no longer prominent. This is, this is something that has to be mentioned. But also, it acts as this buffer between Israel and Saudi Arabia. It's a way of saying, "Listen, I'm I'm willing to communicate, but unless something here happens, I'm li- I'm willing to I'm sorry cooperate and normalize and 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 realign openly, unless these things are are there." The, the, so there, it acts as this as a as a as a mechanism as a function where it kind of allows Saudi Arabia to be close to Israel at the same time distances and it plays a particular you know simultaneous gas and break at the same time mm-hmm. you know it it, it 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 does this very 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 um, I think it, it's done this for a very long time but now we see this I think more openly and that's what I meant by trying to you know introduce new terminology regarding this is to okay how can we understand this how can we how can we try to understand this simultaneous yes but no the simultaneous we're willing to cooperate but you know not now the simultaneous no we will not cooperate but maybe in the future Mm. you know and and that's kind of the role that it plays the the cynical reading of that at least to me is that once again the palestinian cause is being used politically for national interest and when Mm. the time is convenient and by that referring to a piece you wrote earlier when the right person's in the white house then the Palestinian cause will be um, will be dismissed. 
I think, in my opinion, uh, there are these factors that have to that have to play, um, that have to be taken into account, and these variables kind of have to be at least addressed. And I think it will depend on the nature of the person in the White House mm-hmm. and what they're willing to do for people to say, listen, okay, maybe this is now, you know, uh, 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 something that we cannot refuse, uh, an option that we cannot refuse. But in my opinion, I don't see Saudi completely and utterly negating um, the Palestinian issue. It has to be addressed in one way or another. And it's going to depend a lot on framing. So it has, something has to be there. There, there has to be some sort of either sacrifice that, that Saudis could say, listen, we, we, th- this is what we brought for the cause or some kind of, you know, some kind of, I won't say even solution, but something, because that's, that's a very loaded word and a very subjective word, but it, it, something tangible regarding the Palestinian issue at the same time with uh, the right person in the White House. Mm-hmm. And at times, they don't have to be equal. Sometimes one could, for the lack of a better phrase, kind of trump the other one. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, the relationship between them can be very asymmetric. It, doesn't, it could be a lot more of one thing than the other. Yeah. How do you respond to that? Do you think there's a way that um, the Israeli leadership can find something that would work, that they would be able to, to sell to the Saudis to fulfill those types of obligations, leaving aside the, the, the person in the White House, that they could also um, use to appease the various um, wings of the Israeli society, be it the, the hard right, the, um, the settler communities, or indeed the, the hard left as well. Is there, is there something that you can think of that, that might be um, able to tick that box, so to speak? Questions to me, Aziz, or near? Oh, to near, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this obviously depends a bit on, the, uh, on who is the person who's also going to be here. Yeah. Um, hopefully for, for enough time that we'll enable some actions. We have been addicted to, to election cycle campaigns <laughs> in the last year. Yeah. But let me give you a, a bit of the corollary that is very much related to, to what Aziz had mentioned. I think there are two broad schools of thoughts here when it comes to the Abraham Accords and the Palestinian question. One school of thought said, hey, look, we figured it out. We have separated Israeli-Palestinian to Israeli-Arab. We can progress on the Arab front and abandon the Palestinians to their, their destiny or demise and just, you know, continue forward without even touching this because it's, it's a irreconcilable dilemma. We don't really know what to do. We don't really have a partner. They're too split and it's never going to. There's another school of thought uh, which says, well, actually, this is the time of an opportunity. I mean, Qatar is already there. Now there is a rapprochement between Qatars and the Saudis. The Saudis are actually indicating this, this another way to indicate the dilemma and the uh, close and far at the same time, I think has to do with the fact that on the one hand, they very much want to play a role. They feel uh, obliged and responsible uh, uh, for this file. This was also 
it was very much reflected in what uh, Prince Bandar had said when he criticized uh, in a very se se severe way the Palestinian leadership. On the other hand, they uh, don't want to support something that is not going to uh, work. Um, and they believe that they, they will be able to make an appearance once there's something that that may work. And part of that is we need to work it out. Now, I'll give you uh, one example of, of uh, some direction. By the way, some of them are not new. Uh, Prime Minister Ulmert uh, actually discussed them, uh, you know, uh, about 15 years ago uh, in, in the context of Jerusalem. Every time when we've seen uh, riots and the Temple Mount, uh, and, and that's a, a very tricky uh, point of contention that epitomizes and symbolizes a lot of the israeli palestinian conflict. Even now in the last round, and we now have uh, like the, the struggle between the different factions. Who is saving Temple Mount? Is it Hamas? Is it Islamic Jihad? Um, and then on the other hand, the Israelis are, are kind of stuck with that problem. Um, with lots of radicals are trying to climb into the mountains and claim their own. Uh, and occasionally we've had lots of very, very difficult pictures. I, for example, subscribe to, to uh, a view where you can potentially be creative there. Um, I think that, for example, if, if they were not Israeli uh, police, but not Palestinian police in the Temple Mount, there would have been another arrangement. Um, let's, for the sake of the argument, just say that even that there are Saudis there or other, you know, multi-Arab police task force, it's probably going to be a de-escalation because uh, I do not see a Saudi uh, uh, security uh, officer allowed uh, bringing uh, stones and, and, and weapons into the Temple Mount. But of course, when he made the police try to deal with it, it creates a whole different tension. Hmm. But if, if there's an Arab uh, uh, force there that's supposed to help separate the, the people, there may be a, a way of, of doing some degree of de-escalation. Now, that has to do with, with a much larger issue regarding uh, the, the old custodianships in Jordan and, and other Arab rivalries. But from, from an Israeli perspective, uh, if there is some, some potential direction, it has to do with how do we bring uh, the more pragmatic and moderate voices into some of the more problematic arenas, able to show that that actually produces a type of a win-win. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and really, win-win is the challenge. By the way, it's a challenge for the Arab Accord as well. We've done some of this on a state level, uh, but people still need to see that this agenda of partnership resulted in the improvement of their lives, in bringing them additional opportunities, uh, job prospects, education, experiences, business, um, uh, environment, technology. Uh, people need to feel that. And if that's the case, then we'll be able to move to a more positive trajectory uh, that can help the Palestinian part. Uh, they have the Palestinian part. So I uh, subscribe to this School of Public Life Oh, no, if I, I don't want to point a, a very particular path. Uh, and, and I agree, unfortunately, that the Palestinian file is a complex file. Uh, it's difficult to, to, 
speak of a solution with a capital S that, you know, uh, that brings it off the table. Um, but I think the, the move here should be the same type of move. Finding pragmatists, build a coalition of pragmatists that can empower them, who will be able to find a, a, a more middle way path that we can both move to in a win-win scenario. Um, and if the Saudis could actually help pave a path as such and bring about a win-win type of uh, progress, I think this can be an enormous contribution and, and one of historical proportions, especially for a file as complex complex as stuck as the israeli Palestinian yeah, there, I mean, there's so much going on in, in that near and there's so much going on in, in this whole um, broad set of questions. I, I hesitate to, to call it one issue or one, one question. The, uh, the intersectionality of all of these different moving parts is so complex and um, intellectually incredibly rich, but also politically and, and for many, many people, deeply uh, personal, complex, challenging um, and and affects the lives of, of many many people across the region. So it's it's incredibly um, incredibly complex. We've been speaking for a, a very long time now, but I, I'm going to ask you both one final question, and I'd like you um, to limit your answer to one word, please. And the question is this: Will we see normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia within the next decade? Aziz. One word, maybe. please. Maybe. Okay. And Nia? Maybe as well. Maybe. <laughs> Wonderful. Both of you are having a nice view from the fence there. Well done. <laughs> well, on that note, with a degree of optimism laced with caution about the complexity of all of this, I want to give a huge thank you to Aziz and Nia. It's been an absolute pleasure. And a real thank you to you both for taking the time today to go through this um, this really complex, rich, uh, challenging topic. One that affects the lives of, of many, many people, of course, across the region. But also for the first time, bringing together an Israeli and Saudi scholar in this type of forum to discuss questions of normalization, the Abraham Accords and, and much, much more. So a huge thank you to you both. And as always, a huge thank you to you for listening. Please do like, share, subscribe, comment, share, etc., etc. Until next time, thanks for listening.